Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. The Bowery Boys episode 128, Hoaxes and Conspiracies of 1864. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Uh, Back again with another podcast. And this one is very extra special. And I'll tell you why. We talk about history, but occasionally we record in the midst of history. We had a podcast a couple years ago where we recorded about the New York Stock Exchange. Right. And that was right during the stormiest week, I believe, that Wall Street had had in 100 years. Well, a little history is happening right now. We are recording on the eve of this gigantic hurricane. Irene, that is expected to arrive in the city at about 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. So today is Saturday, the 27th of August, 2011. And we're, we're just sort of cranking out our third part <laughs> in the story of the Civil War in New York City while something else is happening outside. We have not evacuated. Neither Greg nor I had to leave our apartments. We do know where our evacuation center is, and it's at the Seward Park High School, which, to tie it back to a podcast, because, <laughs> because it all comes back, um, was the location of the Ludlow Street Jail. The final resting place of... Boss Tweed. That's where he died. So if we have to evacuate... Perhaps we shouldn't say final resting place, but it was his last jail cell. unrestful. That's where we'll have to go if we have to evacuate in the middle of this show. But for now, um, it's raining outside. We're excited to divert our attention to this. This is, again, our third part of our Civil War series. And it's really tales from 1864 because America had been at war. This was the fourth year of the war, and the city was totally on edge. Because, of course, just one year previous, the city had been disrupted horribly by the Civil War draft riots. So we're going to tell a few stories about this year. Now, this will not be as heavy a show as our draft riots episode, which was last episode. This will be a series of tales. Some of them are shocking. Some of them are just absurd. Included in these stories will be one thrilling tale about an attack on some of New York's poshest hotels. An attack by the Confederacy. And on a lighter note, we'll also take you to New York's first theme restaurant. (laughs) This is a podcast potpourri, if ever there was one. (laughs) So join us as we take a trip back to 1864. Now, before we get started, I want everyone to listen to the very end of the podcast because we have a special announcement, a Bowery Boys live event. So stay tuned for those details. Now, Greg, back to our whirlwind history of 1864. Maybe you can set us up a little, situate us. 
on New York during the Civil War? Really quick recap of what we've discussed so far. Now, of course, the Civil War began in 1861. New York, of course, is nowhere near the sites of the battles, but is a city that's torn between loyalty to the Union and a large contingent of people who are very supportive of the South and were very anti-war. Those would be the Copperhead contingency. Sometimes we would elect them in the city, as we did with the charming pro-South mayor, Fernando Wood, which I talked about two episodes ago. The city would soon become exhausted with funding the war and with supplying troops. Thousands of New Yorkers would be employed to fight on the battle lines. Which was very popular at the beginning of the war and even celebrated, but as battles were lost by the North, the attitude quickly soured. All of this would culminate in the summer of 1863 with the eruption of the draft riots. For one week, mobs attacked black people in the streets. They attacked the homes of Republicans and businesses who were associated and who were pro-union. They attacked police and soldiers. It was mass chaos. In the wake of the riots, New York slowly started picking up the pieces. But believe it or not, few rioters were really tried for their crimes. And programs were put in place to ensure that any New Yorker who actually did get drafted or was chosen for the draft could be exempted. Now, what's interesting about the riots, the timing of the riots, is that we know, because we can look back in history, we know that the riots occurred almost a little over halfway through the actual duration of the war. Meaning that for the Union... Although there would still be some very bad moments uh, for the Union Army here, the worst half was kind of over. What's incredible is that the riots of 1863 seemed so devastating. Like, how could the city pick itself back up? But in fact, New Yorkers could actually say that they were benefiting quite handsomely from the war, almost cynically so, if you think about it. Like, the stock market was booming by this time. New York was still trading with the South uh, for cotton, for instance, and other products. Uh, So that wasn't illegal to trade with the, quote, enemy. No, believe it or not. Or at least there were ways to get around it. And the New York financiers knew how to do that. So New York was actually booming financially. There was a lot of wealth pouring in here, and it helped create and foster high society of New York that would, of course, thrive throughout the rest of the 19th century. Now, for the previous couple of years and throughout the draft riots, the mayor was a Republican named George Updike. Perhaps because of the riots, he didn't feel that he could run again. He didn't really want to. He was a Republican. And as you mentioned, it wasn't necessarily easy to be a Republican at this moment either, because everybody was blaming each other. The, the Republicans were blaming the Democrats for not really caring about everybody's rights, but the Democrats were really blaming Republicans for starting the war, for not letting the southern states write their own laws... But it, but it was the Republican administration that was in charge. Abraham Lincoln was running this war and not necessarily winning the war of popular opinion. Now, the Democrats were also divided amongst themselves because there was a big faction that was completely anti-administration and anti-war. But others wanted to also be pro-union, you know, sort of stuck in this quandary of being patriotic but yet against the war. And along comes a candidate named C. Godfrey Gunther who was a rich fur merchant born down on Liberty Street, and he was 42 years old. He was for states' rights. He was even for southern states' rights. But more than anything else, he was just against the war. He was a pacifist, really. It's incredible that New York is now going back to a mayor that espouses these very anti-union philosophies after flirting for like one year with someone who was actually a Would Republican. you say anti-union, though, or just anti-war? Anti-war. Gunther was definitely more anti-war. 
power. I would say Fernando Wood was right. anti-union. Right. But Gunther was different from Wood because he was he was almost religious, I think, in his belief that we shouldn't be at war with ourselves. And he was saddened by the very nature of the Civil War, as were, of course, most Americans. So Gunther didn't seem like he had any chance of winning this election. He wasn't endorsed by Tammany Hall. Uh, he built his whole candidacy on opposing the war. But he won the election by 6,500 votes, which showed just how strongly the residents of New York were turning against this war. And it was Gunther who presided over the city during the final two years of the war, 1864 and 1865. During moments of you know victory in the North, he would sometimes be the sole dissenting voice and refuse to sign off on proclamations or on celebrations, literally raining on parades. <laughs> Speaking of parades, though, Greg, on March 5th, 1864, in this city that was so separated by politics, there was a rare example of the city coming together with a single purpose to cheer on the first regiment of black soldiers who were headed off to the war. This was the Colored Troop Parade. March 5th, 1864, right? right? Which would be less than a year after the Civil War draft riots, which is amazing if you think about how much sentiments could change. I mean, those were such racially fueled riots. It's amazing to think that the same city that was lynching African-Americans in the streets was then celebrating less than a year later troops marching down Broadway as the crowds of all races were waving handkerchiefs and, and saluting them. So there were some positive changes in the city, although it's too simple to say that there wasn't racism, because of course there was. For example, the 7th Regiment refused to let its band march with the black troops. A lot of people, a lot of the press, thought it was scandalous that white women right. were participating in the parade by uh, presenting honors to some of the soldiers. They thought it just looked too untoward to have white women and black men on the stage at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the governor of New York, Seymour, who was also governor during the draft riots, refused to help the state actually organized this first regiment, so he was not exactly facilitating this development. Essentially, a lot of city leaders wanted to erase the stain of the draft riots. They thought this was a nice symbolic example of that. But now the upper classes here, which were pulling together all kinds of resources to support the war in other ways as well, especially the women of New York City. Yes, one month later, April 4th, 1864, the city celebrated the opening of what was called the Metropolitan Fair. Now, this is an event that I wish I could have attended. <laughs> it, it does sound like, like a literal and figurative carnival. <laughs> It was a big old shindig fair, uh, a fundraiser for the Sanitary Commission, which would help aid the war effort. The closest analogy we have to it today is kind of like the Red Cross, although mm -hmm. they got they got involved with like the families of wounded soldiers and making sure that soldiers got back pay and that kind of thing. And it was formed specifically so that American women could participate in the war in the ways that they could. So women from all... All of the important families in New York served on boards and committees and donated all manner of expensive things to be sold or displayed. So there were things for sale, like expensive tea sets or fine jewelry. But then there were other things, like artwork that was on display in a sort of art gallery, including the famous painting Washington Crossing the Delaware was on display. Oh, wow. They also had um, an Indian department. I'm curious about that. They had an Indian wigwam display with traditional 
1864 style Indian community. I'm sure they got the politics <laughs> all right. They had agricultural displays, so there was instruction as well. As you mentioned, this allowed women to to become involved uh, and to really do something beneficial, especially from these upper class families to become involved and to raise a tremendous amount of money for the war effort. But in organizing this event, this was also something to look forward to. I mean, we have to think about the impact of the war on women in New York City, the fact that many of them were mothers and wives of soldiers who were off fighting the war, for whom every day was perhaps brought bad news. And so this was a chance to get involved in something positive. Now, Brooklyn had actually had a similar kind of event in February. But of course, Manhattan's was five times as elegant. And it was located around Union Square, correct? So the city constructed a giant building to house most of the fair called the Palace Garden, which was at 6th Avenue and 14th Street. And then there was another structure on 17th from Broadway to 4th Avenue that housed a music hall and also a restaurant, which we alluded to earlier, might have been the city's first theme restaurant called the Knickerbocker Kitchen. Now, this is something we would have definitely <laughs> been into. I mean, imagine so, like... Is costumes? Is it, what's, what does this entail? The well, theme so the here. women were dressed up in colonial garb and serving waffles and beer and such to clients who paid quite a hefty sum, $2, uh, just to get into the event. Kind of expensive meal, right? I actually have a quote from the New York Times describing what savories one might enjoy at the Knickerbocker Kitchen. Mm, do tell. Quote, the viands offered will consist of various dishes that delighted the capacious stomachs of a wealthy Dutch burger in 1654. <laughs> the unctuous ollie the crisp croiler, the rich mince pie, the savory head cheese, mm. and the well-smoked ham. Together with tea, coffee, eggs, chicken, waffles, both soft and hard, gingerbread, roast veal, corned beef, pot cheese, wafers, and pickles. Wow, (laughs) I had no idea that there was pot cheese and head cheese. I thought it was just waffles and beer. So, but it was served up by women dressed in what they believed to be the traditional Dutch garb. And many of these women were from upper-class families, too. It's an extraordinary image to think of this. And yeah, I mean, it's it can be considered like it, it's a theme restaurant so that you can trace them back to here, to the 1860s. The entire event, the fair, was extraordinarily popular. It was the biggest event in the city in 1864, by some accounts, and it raised over $1 million for the Sanitary Commission. The Metropolitan Fair represented really the best of New Yorkers, of what they could bring to the war effort. Pot cheese. Pot cheese, for instance. But these times also brought out the worst of New Yorkers. And I have a little story here, which for time immemorial shall be called the Gold Hoax of 1864. Like I said, you know, there was a tons of wealth pouring through New York, but the hottest trade in town at this time was in the trading of gold and gold prices. You know, it fluctuated and was intimately connected with how the war was going. So to be kind of sinister, people would bet on gold prices. And if the, if the Union lost battles, then the price of gold went up. Well, by the end of this particular year, gold traders would actually have their own gold exchange on William Street. Uh, It would be nicknamed the Gold Room. Naturally, that kind of trade would be connected to breaking news and would be closely allied with the telegraph, because that would be the fastest way that New Yorkers would get news in this particular time. So this 
combination of like the telegraph and gold trading leads to one very particular scandalous event. It, it occurred early morning of May 18th, 1864, and would involve two particular newspapers, the New York World and the Journal of Commerce. So in the 1840s, uh, a conglomeration of New York newspapers put their heads together and said, well, for national news, it may behoove us to sort of pour our energies into one organization that where we can share those pieces of information and run them in our own new- newspapers in the way that we want to. That organization was called the Associated Press. Uh-huh. And that was formed in like the 1840s. So imagine the Associated Press office here in 1864. 3.30 in the morning is a skeleton crew. And there's just one man who's a, a dispatcher there, and he's responsible for taking the hot telegraphs and then circulating them to all the newspapers so they can put them in the papers. So there's a rapping at the door at 3.30, and he opens the door, and there's a young man there, probably like a newsie. I've heard him described as a street urchin, mm-hmm. if you will. So just imagine this person. And in his hands, there was a telegraph. And this boy had run over with this telegraph and said, well, this needs to be printed. So the dispatcher looked at it and said, wow, this is pretty big. Let me circulate it to all of the people in the Associated Press, like all the various newspapers. And what did it say? Essentially, it was a letter from Abraham Lincoln, a horrifying letter, basically calling for the draft of 400,000 brand new soldiers for the war and basically implying in the letter that things are going absolutely terribly for the Union. And because of, quote, the general state of the country, unquote, that 400,000 new soldiers needed to be called up. Okay, this is a city who blanches when they hear the word draft. Okay, keep in mind. So this letter got circulated over to the newspapers. Now, some of the newspapers saw it and said, hmm, this looks a little strange to me. I'm going to go fact check it. Let's see if we can find some other information. But two newspapers, the New York World and the Journal of Commerce, they didn't bother with this little thing called fact checking. They ran the letter as is into the newspapers. So that morning, people got up and they opened up their newspapers and were horrified and shocked to see this letter. In no uncertain terms, Lincoln was basically saying the Union was losing and almost impossible for victory. And also, I suppose that the war would be dragging on and the price of gold would shoot up. Exactly. So people reacted immediately. The streets that morning were filled with panic and concern. Businessmen, they sold a lot of stock. But most importantly, exactly as you you infer, the price of gold skyrocketed that morning. Now, at some of these other newspapers, they're saying all this that's going on, and they're like, wait a minute, that letter doesn't sit right with us. There's something wrong about that letter. So a group of editors, and it seems to me like it was a mob of people, actually end up going to the Journal of Commerce office at Wall and Water Street, where we're outside and they were demanding, where did you get this letter? We demand an explanation. The editor came out and they said, well, no, it's, it's true. I mean, look, it's a telegraph from the Associated Press. Don't blame us. The Associated Press denied it. And then actually by noon, there was a telegraph from the White House directly, and they, they denied it. By that afternoon, everyone in the city had realized that it had been a hoax, that that letter had been faked. But by that point, the prices had already been inflated for that one period of time. Wait, so the Associated Press denied that they even sent out the telegraph? 
The Associated Press denied that they knew it was a forgery. As they received oh. all different kind of telegraphs, they were not complicit in this. They were like, don't shoot the messenger. Well, Abraham Lincoln ordered the commander of the New York troops, a man named John Dix. He ordered Dix and the Union soldiers to enter the offices of the New York World and the Journal. They seized the presses of these two newspapers for three days and ordered the arrests of the editors. So they did more than just stopping the press. They completely they seized it. Yes. And seized the editors. Because they, were, they thought for sure that this was some kind of a confederacy was behind this in some way. In fact, the New York World wouldn't end up publishing for like another week. This seizure by the federal government actually had a little bit of the opposite effect. A lot of the other city editors rushed to the defense of the editors of these papers, um, you know, crying outrage and, and freedom right. of the press and civil rights. You can almost say that, that from that point on, newspapers that were even in the corner, Republican newspapers and pro-union Democrat newspapers that were in the corner of Lincoln got very cynical because right. of this particular event. So did they ever catch the person who started this conspiracy? Who, who wrote it? Well, the answer is in Brooklyn. Oh, of course. <laughs> More specifically, the main newspaper, the Brooklyn Eagle. Investigators tracked down that newsy that had just popped up in the middle of the night who had delivered that original dispatch and then from him traced it across the water over to Brooklyn. That letter had actually been created and forged by the editor of the Eagle itself, Joseph Howard, and one of his reporters had worked together. Sure enough, they wanted to drive up prices, uh, for the gold prices. It was particularly scandalous because Howard was actually a well from a well-connected Brooklyn family. He was even friends with Henry Ward Beecher, Prominent oh. preacher in, of uh, also in Brooklyn. Yes, did did it not occur to them that it was illegal to? <laughs> they may have believed that no one would ever be able to trace the original letter, hmm. and by that point they would be able to profit handsomely. By the time it was caught, well, Howard was thrown into Fort Lafayette prison. Fort Lafayette was a fortification that was right off the coast of Brooklyn, so they threw him into prison. His friend Henry Ward Beecher even tried to intercede on his behalf to get him freed. Amazingly, Lincoln kind of forgot about this, and he, he did end up getting freed, uh, because later in the summer, Lincoln did employ another draft. Almost the same amount of troops as was in the original letter. So, the, so Howard kind of So there's off. a certain irony here, but still... The dispatch was a forgery. Right. What you're probably hearing in this particular story is there's a lot of anti-Lincoln sentiment in New York at this time. And there's always has been, but it seems to be welling up this particular year because it is an election year. Right. The election of 1864, which, because we are a New York-focused podcast, we'll just really be talking now about how the election affected New York I think it is funny for us to consider now that, that Lincoln was not universally loved or praised or revered as he is today. I mean, of course, we're looking at the Civil War and Lincoln from, you know, 150 years later. And we, he commonly tops the list of the greatest president of all time. Right. And at this point in 1864, he was certainly not considered to be one of the greatest. In fact, he was widely criticized for being totally ineffectual. That sentiment would have laughed, gotten yourself laughed out of town. Right. As you mentioned, he wasn't popular with editors and newspaper owners because he had arrested these editors themselves and locked them away. He seemed like he was infringing on these constitutional principles of 
freedom of the press. And, too, yeah, too much federal intrusion. And he was building this sort of executive branch that seemed like it was really overtaking the other branches of government. But most importantly, I think he wasn't popular because he hadn't ended this war. Americans were slaughtering each other, and he couldn't even seem to make real gains or or negotiate a peace treaty with the South. There were plenty mm-hmm. of people who were proposing that he be more of a negotiator. Well, even Fernando Wood was trying to intercede directly with Lincoln to make him do such a thing. As it turned out, Lincoln's opponent in the election of 1864 was George B. McClellan. Now, he had been a major general in the war. He was briefly the general-in-chief of the Union Army. Uh, in 1862, after some, shall we say, tactical misfires, <laughs> he was removed from that position by Lincoln, who criticized his abilities to really lead the army. So he, he removed him from that post, which added a little friction between their relationship. He was no longer a major general, but McClellan remained a popular figure. Because of these qualities, he received the Democratic nomination uh, for the election of 1864. Now, McClellan actually lived in the city, so that, that you can certainly right. attribute maybe a lot of New York support for that. But there were some huge rallies for him, and thousands of people. There were huge rallies for both candidates. But let's also not forget that New York is a hugely democratic city at Mm -hmm. this point as well. Many of the newly arrived immigrants are still operating within the democratic machine, the Tammany machine that Mm -hmm. was still pushing them to, to vote democratic. So things were looking bad for Lincoln nationally and also in the and especially in the city. By early September, we're pushing up to September of 1864, Mm -hmm. two months before the election, the city was jolted into a celebration when the news came that Atlanta had fallen to the Union Army. The city council immediately ordered the, quote, illuminations to celebrate the victories. Now, Hmm. illuminations. What is this? Before the days of Christmas lights. (laughs) Right. To show popular support, people were to put candles in their windows to show solidarity behind the Union cause. That might have looked really kind of beautiful on certain streets, you know, in the days before electric lights here, which is gas lights and little illuminated windows. And storefronts and and in the homes and apartment buildings. It would be beautiful. So the city council ordered this illumination and asked the mayor to sign off on a proclamation. But of course, who was the Uh, mayor? Mr. Gunther. Mr. Gunther, who was completely anti-war, and he not only refused to sign any sort of proclamation like this, but he denounced the president, saying that the destruction of another city in the United States was nothing to be celebrated by another city. And and he was also fearing that if the Union kept being victorious, that the city would be required to celebrate even more victories with more illuminations. I mean, I guess I understand this, but he's a little bit of a party pooper, number one. He is a party pooper. And B, he really is kind of letting his true colors show a little bit in these denouncements. Gunther also saw this illumination request as political propaganda coming from the Republican Party Mm -hmm. because, of course, I mean, those candles would also be celebrating Lincoln's victories. Lincoln was so closely tied to this war effort. But no matter what Gunther thought, more of these military victories certainly helped out Lincoln around the country. Republicans came together more, including the so-called radicals to embrace their candidate. And even some Democrats, called war Democrats, joined in support of their commander-in-chief. But let's not forget that New York is not the rest of the country. So as we get closer and closer to Election Day, 
McClellan was still very popular in New York City. Meanwhile, Fernando Wood is out telling people that the only reason that Abe wants to liberate the slaves was to bring new cheap labor to the northern states. Fernando is still a rabble rouser here. It just it's so frustrating every time I hear a new detail. Right. It just makes me want to pull my hair out. And people were beginning to get agitated, mm-hmm. which made everybody nervous. Um, because, of course, this is just a year after the draft riots and the city's getting agitated before an election. So people were understandably nervous that something was going to happen. And meanwhile, the Secretary of State Seward uh, sent the city a report saying that Confederates were planning to start fires on Election Day. Mm -hmm. So the city was getting kind of nervous, even though some in the city government thought that that was just even more propaganda, that it wasn't (laughs) even true. But the city didn't want to take chances. The federal government didn't want to take chances. And so they sent a man named General Butler to New York with his troops. So in these weeks before Election Day, the streets were filled with troops because there was this fear that there could be not only some kind of attack by Confederates, but just crazy rioting because it's happened before. Right. On Election Day proper... The troops were not in the streets. The troops, were, for the most part, were in ships that were in the East River and the Hudson River. They were ready, but they were out of sight as to avoid inducing any sort of resentment or trouble. That is such a profound thing to think about. Election day in the city, and there's boatloads of hundreds of troops just waiting for something to happen. There's just something so ominous about it. And election day came and was, for the most part, very calm. We obviously know that Lincoln won the election. But McClellan took New York City by 37,000 votes. And the next day, the Daily News and other Democratic-leaning papers in the city lamented the re-election of Abraham Lincoln. So outside of that whole voting for the wrong guy thing on Election Day, it did go off without a hitch. But that was not the way it was supposed to be, for there was an actual confederate plot that was supposed to roll out on election day so it wasn't just political propaganda no that it was an actual warning but let me back up a little bit and let me let me explain to you why it didn't happen why it was merely delayed but it, it didn't happen on election day it happens on another holiday Confederates are kind of getting desperate by this time with the burning of Atlanta and with Sherman's march to the sea. It definitely looks like the Union Army's on an upswing. So the Confederacy is getting really desperate to do something big. Our foe here will come not from the South, but actually from the North, from Canada. There was a Confederate presence in Canada. Did you know, in fact, that the most northern conflict of the Civil War was actually in a town called St. Albans, Vermont? There was a Confederate attack from over the Canadian border. That was just in October of 1864. So it was just the month before when this happened. It was a preamble for what would happen next. And just a month before election. There was this Confederate plan to plan the methodical destruction of northern cities, and in particular, two cities, New York City and Chicago. A plot was planned in New York um, involving a group of eight young Confederate spies that were all in their, in their 20s. The plan was to be carried out on Election Day, November 8th. The two main Confederate spies, one named John William Headley, the other one Robert Martin. And I'm going to mention the name of one more because it's kind of significant. His name is Robert Cobb Kennedy. So he was one of the co-conspirators here. This Kenny guy was very full of vinegar, very into the Confederate cause, and just weeks before getting involved with this 
particular conspiracy. He had escaped a prison that was in Sandusky, Ohio, <gasps> um, which is, of course, near where Tom grew up. Very good. Yes. Um, so he Home of Cedar Point, the amazement park. <laughs> so he escaped from Sandusky, Ohio, went to Canada, and then was employed into the service for this particular conspiracy. The plan was for them to come to New York in disguises stay at various hotels, and then set fires throughout the city. So the fires would create a certain commotion, and then they were told by their Confederate officers that there would, quote, be 20,000 men waiting for them in New York, like hidden Confederate soldiers here. Who would take advantage of the confusion. Right, and all these Copperhead sympathizers uh, would then sweep in, and they would free all the Confederate soldiers that were in the various forts, and they would capture the Treasury Building. So that was how they were going to take over New York. And that's a very scary plan, if you think about it, because Mm. had they been really organized and had they been really on top of it, it could have been done because, you know, it's a very chaotic time here in New York. Now, their target in particular for these fires were some of New York's fanciest hotels. Um, They chose hotels because it represented the wealth of the town and the growth of the city because there were, of course, not only high society New Yorkers that go to hotels for various reasons, but of course you have, you know, businessmen, tourists that go through here. Mm-hmm. And also it's the easiest for these men to access because you could just check in a room. Right. They could just stay there. Now, these 19 hotels would be a wide range of different places from the oldest hotels in town, like the Astor House down by City right. Hall, uh, the John Jacob Astor's pet project here, one of the oldest and first fancy hotels. You would have also targeted these trendy big hotels like the St. Nicholas, Broadway and Spring Street. The sort of W of the day. Yeah, actually, kind. it's a good analogy. And right across the street from it, the Metropolitan Hotel, which if you've listened to the Niblo's Garden podcast, you know that, that it's built on the land that was the original garden of Niblo's Garden. But the theater, also called Niblo's Garden, was accessed through the lobby of the Metropolitan Hotel. Neither of those are there today, but that's in the Soho shopping district. Right, sure. But then you had even the newest hotels were targeted. Um, Those were up towards Madison Square Park, for instance. Most notably, the biggest and the most popular hotel in New York, without a doubt, called the Fifth Avenue Hotel. So all of those were going to be targeted. And other things that we've talked about in this podcast, various meetings and election meetings, took place in some of these same hotels. So these these were public spaces. I mean, and little did, you know, and all these people know as they were having their rallies and whatnot that like this secret plot was going on and was would be their own, the own places in which they were gathering were being targeted. So on October 27th, these eight men, they set out in pairs. Uh, they rode the New York Central Railroad down from Niagara Falls to New York City. They arrived and they checked in to various hotels under different aliases. I mean, just imagine, you know, oh, yeah. we're talking sp- some serious 19th century spy work here, okay? Disguises, fake whiskers, mm. wigs, na- you name it. In each hotel, they had different names. Uh, and they would change hotels every few days to avoid detection. So they were just kind of trolling around to these different hotels. Right. But not setting any fires. Not yet, not yet. Um, now, the very next day, they actually met with an editor of a radical anti-union newspaper called the Freeman's Journal. This seems rather conspicuous to me, but they thought it was a good idea to all meet with this particular <laughs> editor. Um, now, this it this, would help the investigation later. <laughs> yes, uh, 
The other actually had connections to people like Fernando Wood and his brother Benjamin Wood, who ran the New York Daily News. It's even been hinted that the Wood brothers knew of this plot, which, again, did I tell you that I'm pulling my hair out every time I hear some crazy detail about Fernando Wood? So throughout the week, they tried to blend in. And they even, like, they did things that, like, tourists would do in New York in the midnight. Like, they would go hear Henry Ward Beecher. They'd right. go listen to a sermon. They'd go see a show. Now, Election Day arrived. All of a sudden, this plan didn't seem like such a good idea because there were thousands of troops in the city. Butler was in town. The city was in high guard. And as you said, there's boats in the Hudson River and the East River. So this- And they're looking at their fake whiskers. And- <laughs> And going, hmm, maybe we shouldn't do this right now. And also, not helping matters is that while this was going on, there was a separate group of Confederates who were trying to do this in Chicago. Well, they were captured, and this was in the newspapers. And so the New York operatives, they thought, well, we're going we're gonna to do this, but we're not going to do it on Election Day. So they sort of went back into hiding, mm. went back into their whiskers, <laughs> went back into the disguises. So Butler eventually left the city. And a lot of these troops left because they were needed elsewhere. And, well, you know, the threat's over in New York. Don't have to worry about it. They decided on November 24th, that's Thanksgiving, that they reorganized on that particular day. And they decided to reactivate this particular plot. And they were going to do it the next day. That's November 25th. Now, we don't celebrate November 25th anymore, but it was one of the biggest holidays in New York. This was evacuation day Mm -hmm. this was the day that the british were booted out of new york in 1783 back then it was still a very uh, people went out to bars 100 years away people had parties got drunk so they needed to get these incendiary devices to create the fire so headley went down to washington place do you know where this is it's washington square it's the street that is to the west of it no headley went down to this chemist who was there, the the chemist provided him with a valise. And within the valise, there were various canisters. And within the canisters were a collection of chemicals. And we call them Greek fire. Uh, This literally traces back to ancient times. Although I'm sure that the chemical makeup of these is very different. But essentially, it's like phosphorus and these types of things. And when exposed to oxygen, and after a few moments, it instantly combusts into flame. So they had these jars of Greek fire inside a suitcase? Yeah. Now, that's you're, you're seeing part of the problem here. And it's this, this method of choosing to sabotage the city really played to the downfall of it here. First of all, this valise was very heavy, very bulky, and it smelled. I mean, it's phosphorus. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's, it smells disgusting. Rotten egg smell, okay? Right. It's almost a comedic adventure to think of Headley dragging this smelly valise through the streets. You know, there's no subway, so he has to, you know, catch a horse car. With other people on it, ostensibly. Right. So to his hotel, and then eventually to their point of rendezvous, the conspirators here met in a small cottage that was up by Central Park. You know, the city was not, like, too developed up there yet, and Central Park was still being worked out, so... They, th- they believe that they had some privacy up here. So evacuation day arrives in the evening. The men spread out through the city. They have no rhyme or reason to their plans. No one can really figure out why this was done so incompetently. They, they didn't know how to use the Greek fire. They didn't really practice with it on how to use it. Of course, they had all of these disguises again, but on top of it, they had these heavy, smelly bags, okay? So they were checking into these hotels, but causing all sorts of suspicion. It's almost laughable. And it's only funny because, of course, it was a spectacular failure. Right. So 
early evening. It's right when shows are beginning. People are on the street. They're out going to they're going to celebrate, have a big night out in the town. You know, a lot of shows are going on. For instance, most notably at the Winter Garden, which was one of the grandest theater in town here, there was Julius Caesar with uh, some of the greatest actors. The Booth brothers were oh, there. And we'll get to um, him in a second. Yes, Junius brother, Junius Edwin, and of course, young John Wilkes Booth. Headley, leading the conspirators here, he checked into the Astor Hotel. He got to his room. He took a bunch of furniture, bundled it on the floor, and then some, and some cloth and everything, and then sprinkled the, the Greek fire on top of it, and it burst into flame. And so he left that hotel, and so he went to another hotel that was close by, to the city hotel, and to one called the Everett Hotel. In this same fashion, the other conspirators were, at, were going to other hotels that were clustered close together, so they could do it really quickly. Kind of sinister, because if, if you think about it, what Headley was, was doing is he was at the second hotel, and looking back back at the Astor House, and he saw a little bit of flame coming out of a window. Almost immediately, these fires were quickly discovered. They were discovered by guests or workers in almost every hotel they went to. Part of the miscalculation is they, just, they chose to do it at the busiest part of the evening. People quickly found them, and they were, you know, quickly extinguished. At the Metropolitan Hotel, for instance, the fire was extinguished by the staff, and they found this empty valise and for some reason, it was filled with pantaloons <laughs> that they had tried to catch on fire. <laughs> Many of the fires just burnt themselves out. Some of them were, were found days later because they had just, like, they petered out and no one had gone into the room. Other rooms, they found unopened, unused bottles of Greek fire. Like, the men had just panicked and, like, didn't even use them. So it sounds like this conspiracy is really just a big dud just picture like a souffle like collapsing that's what this plan is exactly you know between 8 p.m till much later at night there were all these various fires reported and fire departments were called and everything but the crowds far from being frightened by this they're all drunk i mean you know how new yorkers are like when there's something like big dramatic happens and some groups of people would actually wander from hotel to hotel looking for fires thinking well maybe there's a fire here um it almost became this bizarre scavenger hunt so remember this guy kennedy so he was this this conspirator kennedy while he was doing this he was drunk the whole time while he was setting the Greek fires. To get away from some of the crowds, he actually ducked into Barnum's American Museum. This was, of course, the premier entertainment spot in New York at Broadway and Ann Street, very close across the street from Astor House and right next to the City Hall. Did he drag in any Greek fire with him? Yes. As a matter of fact, he thought it was a really clever idea. This was not planned. He had a vial of Greek fire, so he went to a stairwell and he threw it on the stairwell and it smashed and the stairwell burst into flame. People who were on the second and third floor began panicking and they ran to the windows to try to escape. And no one was seriously injured. People were crying out to free the animals that were hit. Because remember, there's all these all sort of menagerie. Right. This, and what's funny is this was like the most random moment of the whole affair and probably one of the best known incidents. The reason it's best known is because Barnum, never one to let a moment go by without a little publicity, ran all of these letters in the paper the following days and just said, don't worry, everything's okay at the Barnum American Museum, but you can come and look at the staircase. Of course, it became <laughs> a new destination. 
So, a new attraction. So, amazingly, all these fires were, were set, but no one was caught that evening. So they all went to bed and woke up the next day. And then that evening of the following day, they got onto the Hudson River Railroad and escaped back up to Canada. Eventually, one man was caught for the conspiracy. Of course, that was Robert Cobb Kennedy. Because he was still drunk. They dragged him to Fort Lafayette. This is where um, the editor right. Howard was kept. And on March 25th of 1865, he was executed there. Incredibly, I mean, this was two weeks before Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, ending the Civil War. So there's something very symbolic about this particular moment anyway. And Lee's surrender is on April 10th, 1865. On that day, flags were flying all over the city, except, notably, in front of the Daily News. Mr. Benjamin Wood's paper. And even Mayor Gunther signed off on a proclamation setting the 20th of April to be the city's official day of celebration. That was just 10 days later. Unfortunately, of course, four days later, on April 14th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth at a theater in Washington, D.C. The president died the next morning, April 15th, 1865, and the city, instead of preparing for these celebrations, prepared instead for great mourning, public funerals, and for the the president's body to actually come to New York City. The city was, uh, I think you could say, in shock. I think Certainly. Politicians. All of America was. The clergy, the businessmen, right, they struggled to really even understand uh, what to make of it. And these were people who, of course, had been on opposing sides. They were not only united by the winning of the war, but now they were united in, in and grief. tragedy, right. And four days later, on Easter Sunday, the 19th, the sermons in the churches were all about the president. Five days later, on the 24th of April, the president's coffin arrived by ferry from Jersey City and was led in a procession to City Hall, where he laid thousands of people visited him there, and there was another funeral held later on. There's a statue in Union Square of Abraham Lincoln. So I believe that the procession also went through Union Square as well. That's right. Now, one New Yorker for whom this uh, event was especially tragic was, of course, Edwin Booth, the famous actor, whose brother was, of course, the assassin, and, and nearly destroyed Edwin's career himself. He would eventually rebound from this. And the more I think about it, the more I think that the life and career of Edwin Booth would make another great podcast. Oh, right. And his association with the Players Club and Gramercy Park. And with that, that is actually the completion of our tale of New York City in the Civil War. Check out the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for stories that are related to this podcast and even a few images from the, from the era. Now, Greg, you teased us at the beginning of the podcast saying that you'd tell us something about a live event. Yes. It'll be a Bowery Boys-related event, although I'll be doing the speaking for this particular... Tom will be there, but be I, there. Will be, uh, I will be doing reading a piece, an expanded version of a solo podcast. Um, it's part of the Lit Crawl, which is an annual event. There's actually a lot of readings that go on at the same time, and they all happen in bars. So you can go to LITCRAWL.org, LitCrawl.org, for more information in the schedule. But essentially, I'll be reading on Saturday, September 10th, 2011 at 6 p.m. And the location of that reading will be at Swift Hibernian Lounge at 34 East 4th Street. I'll also be joined by Ed Hamilton, who is the author of the book Legends of the Chelsea Hotel. Oh, great. So he yeah. has a really interesting story it's about a couple people who lived in the hotel, just some crazy kooks. It sounds fascinating. So we hope to see you there. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us for this tale 
1864. We do not have to evacuate yet. We hope the tales were memorable and that our evening will prove to be perhaps not too memorable. (laughs) Hopefully. So thanks very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.